come before you knowing we need your help to understand your word. We pray that you would illumine our minds so that we understand your word. Lord, that you would soften our hearts so that we receive it with joy. That as we examine your word, that we would be examined by it. And Lord, that as we look at it, we would see you as our great creator, ourselves as fallen creatures, you as our great savior, who in spite of our sin, had great love for us and sent your son to die for us so that you might extend to us grace, that you might win us back into your kingdom to live for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Charles Dickens begins his great novel, A Tale of Two Cities, with the following paragraph. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. Of course, Dickens is talking about France and England in the 18th century. But he's picking up on a theme from a writer who some know as Aurelius Augustine, or you might have heard called St. Augustine from the 4th century. St. Augustine wrote a book. It's considered one of the greatest classics in Western literature. Tale of Two Cities, obviously, is up there on the list, too. Called The City of God. It's a book. And in the book, St. Augustine makes two great contrasts, similar to the way that Dickens is making two great contrasts. He talks about the city of God, and he talks about the city of man. For Augustine, the city of God is the kingdom of God. What we've been talking about as we've done this series, God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. That is the kingdom of God. It existed in the garden and then we fell. And God began to bring his kingdom again through his people whom he chose through covenants, first with Abraham, then with Moses, then with David, and then the new covenant which goes not only to Israel but to the Gentiles. And he said, through my church, I will bring my kingdom. And how does his kingdom come? Whenever God is present, the kingdom is. Thus, when Jesus arrived, what does John the Baptist say? Repent for what? The kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus says that of himself. The kingdom is God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. That's the kingdom of God or as Augustine called it, the city of God. The city or the kingdom of man is the city or the kingdom that we live in as a result of the fall. Now, Augustine was specifically referring to the Roman Empire as the city of man and the church as the city of God. And in his time, the Roman Empire was the predominant city of man. It was the predominant kingdom on earth. And the church, obviously, was the city of God. 
God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. In our time, the kingdom or the city of man where we live is what? America. And the kingdom of God or the city of God is the evangelical church. And by that, I don't just mean a local church building. I mean the people who believe. There are these two great cities. These two great cities. They have been there since the fall. And I want you to understand that. They've been there since the fall. And until Jesus returns, all of us will live in these two cities. Until either we die and have our personal eschatological end times moment, right? When we die. Or until Jesus returns, we will live in both kingdoms or cities. That's why I called the sermon a tale of two cities. As believers, we all live in the city of man and in the city of God. As Paul says, we have a kind of dual citizenship. One in this earthly kingdom we call America and another in God's kingdom. However, our citizenship as Americans, according to scripture, ought to be one of as those who are sojourners or pilgrims, not those who lay down roots. Even Abraham understood this when he came into the promised land. He came into the land that God sent him to. And Hebrews 11 tells us that he lived in tents as one who was a sojourner or a stranger or an alien in that land. Why? Because he looked forward to the city whose founder and builder was God. In other words, Abraham always knew that while he lived in the city of man, he should never live there as a permanent resident. He should always live there as an alien or stranger, always looking forward to the city of God, whose builder and founder is God. And that is the story that we find ourselves in the midst of. In other words... I picked the story, A Tale of Two Cities, and I started with Dickens' contrasts because we understand the phrase as Christians in this life now, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Do we not? Because we live in two cities or kingdoms at one time. We are in the story that we read here This story that we read, we participate in. And that's what we're going to look at. How did these two cities come about? And how does it help us understand God that they did? Well, understand we've got to review the story thus far. The story is that God created everyone. God created everyone. He started with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were God's people without sin. In God's place, the Garden of Eden, under God's rule and blessing. That's who they were. And then Satan came in, another counselor, you might say, and gave them some advice. He said, you know what? God is wrong. 
God tells you you can't eat any of the fruit. And they say, no, 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 God didn't say that. God said we could eat from every tree, not just not that one. And Satan goes, well, fine. Essentially, here's the gist of it. Why doesn't God want you to eat from that one tree? What is he, some kind of control freak? He doesn't really want you to know the whole truth. You could know it all. You could be like him. And he doesn't want that. And so they eat the fruit. And they fall into sin. And God curses the ground. And he curses the woman and the man. And he curses the serpent. And then from there, that all happens in Genesis 1 through 3. And then from Genesis 3 on, we see the effects of that sin. We see Adam and Eve immediately go into hiding, immediately ashamed, trying to cover themselves with fig leaves. We see them get kicked out of the garden as part of the effects of the fall. They're booted from the garden. We see fear. We see the breakdown of societal relationships. We see a breakdown of the ecosystem as man tries to farm and get life from the ground. Instead of getting life from the ground, he's often getting thorns and thistles. He's working hard and he does the exact opposite of what was intended for the earth in the first place. Instead of it giving him life, eventually he's buried in it. We see a complete reversal of what God intended. After that, they leave the garden and Adam and Eve give birth to two sons, Cain and Abel. Cain is their first son and he kills Abel. And then he builds a city to exalt himself. Did you know that? He kills Abel and then he goes off and builds a city to exalt himself. And this is the first time we see the beginnings of the physical makeup of the city of man. Where he says of himself, I will no longer be in the kingdom of God, a kingdom that is marked by humility and dependence on my creator, a kingdom that exists for his glory, a kingdom that exists to name his name. But I will now build a kingdom or a city that exalts me, that exalts man. And so because Abel's righteous Abel dies, God gives Adam and Eve another son, Seth. And then through Seth's line comes a guy we all know named Noah. And the world gets so evil in the city of man and abandons God to such a great extent that God is sick of it and decides he's going to destroy them all. And he's going to reestablish his kingdom through Noah. And so we have the great flood. Noah comes out of the ship after the flood and immediately Noah is in sin. Drunk, exposing himself. And one of his sons, Ham, actually tries to take advantage of the situation and humiliate his dad. But one of his sons, Shem, covers him up. And then Shem ends up, if you watch his family tree, ends up having a son down the line named Abram which is what we're going to get into next week in Genesis 12. But in the midst of all of this, after Noah comes out, what does man then do? God has just shown his judgment for man abandoning his city, his kingdom, and going after his own city and kingdom. 
And now God, and God has just shown his grace or his mercy in saving Noah and repopulating the earth and making a covenant with him, never to flood the earth again. And what is the response of man? They build another city. And this time, the city they build is so ostentatious that they actually go to build a tower to exalt themselves. What's funny, by the way, of the story of Genesis 11, which I don't entirely have time to get into this morning, is in Genesis 11, after they build this temple, this tower to exalt themselves, thinking that they are so great, the author, literally, Moses is a genius. He says, and God came down from heaven to see their tower. See the humor there? We are so great. Look at this great tower we built. And God has to come down and condescend to see it because it's so puny compared to him. But they don't get it. And so he scatters them all across the earth. And then after that, we pick up the story of Abraham. But this is what I want you to get at this morning. I want you to understand this morning. That since the fall, there are two cities. The city or the kingdom of God whose entrance is humility. It's the entrance requirement. Faith, humility, worship. Whose primary symbol is the cross. Whose whole goal is the exaltation of the glory of God. And there's another city, the city of man. Whose entrance or dominant, predominant ethic is pride whose primary symbol is a tower a great architectural structure and whose end or goal is the exaltation or glory of man those are the two cities we live in as believers unbelievers only live in the city of man believers live in both What I want you to understand, though, is while we've created this city and while the city of man will ultimately be judged, and you see that happen in Revelation, when Jesus returns and destroys that great whore, what it calls it, the city of Babylon, which is just another way for him to talk about that great city of man that attempts to exalt itself, that's full of pride, that's opposed to God, God will eventually destroy that. However, what I want you to see today is that while we are trapped, in a sense, in this city, while we're here experiencing the effects of the city of man because of the fall, crying out to God, who will deliver me from this body of death? While that's true because of the fall, that is not where the great king of the city of God wants to leave us. That's what I want you to understand. We see a picture of the graciousness of the king of the city of God or the kingdom of God in Genesis 3 through 11. I want you to see the beginning of that picture because that picture, and I want you to see probably five things about it today. For sake of time, I had six, but for sake of time, probably five things I want you to see about that great king And those themes run through the whole of Scripture. And so that's the point this morning, is to exult in our great King who desires to take us out of the city of man and to make us His people 
in his place under his rule and blessing. And I want you to understand that from the moment we fell, from that very moment, God began to extend grace to us. And he began the project of saving us. He planned it before we ever fell, but he began that work then. And he's trying to save us out of it, and we see that picture. I hope to show you the king of glory and the king of grace. The king who breaks into the city of man and saves us out of it. So I want to look at six truths. Here's the first one. These are six truths about our gracious king. Because there's six truths about our gracious king, we might say there's six truths or lessons about sovereign grace. Right? Gracious king. He's our sovereign and he's gracious. There are lessons about sovereign grace. There are lessons about why we exist as a church. Why we named ourselves what we did. Because we see ourselves as a city within this city, Bakersfield. We are see ourselves in that way. And this is what the king of our city looks like. This is what he is like. First, God graciously seeks those who are lost. You hear that? God graciously seeks those who are lost. Oftentimes I'm asked if our church is seeker sensitive. If you've been at all a part of the Christian movement out there, is your church seeker sensitive? And I always answer the same way. Yes. If you mean that the seeker is God, then we're seeker sensitive. While we don't believe that men truly seek God apart from him, we do believe that God seeks men. Now look with me at Genesis 3, 8, and 9. See the seeking nature of God. Here's Adam and Eve just after their fall. They've covered themselves with loincloths, and here's what it says. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So what do the man and woman do? Do they go looking for God? Oh, no, we're in trouble. Let's go find him. Let's go get his help. Our lives are, we're shameful and we're fearful and our marriage is falling apart and we're fighting now. And there's misery and work has become hard. They understand the fall. Do they say, because I'm so overwhelmed by my sin, by my guilt, by the destruction it's bringing to my life, I'm going to flee to God. No. What do they do? They run from him. Not to him. And what does he do? Verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? They hear the sound of the Lord God walking through the garden, calling out to them. God sought them out. They were sinners fleeing from him and he relentlessly and graciously pursued them. That's our God. That is the king 
of the city of God. He is the God who seeks the lost. You know, we do the same in our sin that Adam and Eve do when they're working to avoid God. Do the same thing. We cling to this city, the city of man. We cling to the kingdom of man. We don't go looking for God. He comes looking for us. Romans 3, 10 and following. No one seeks God. No, not one. God comes looking for man. The whole Bible, you know that? The whole Bible from Genesis 3 all the way to Revelation is about what? God coming to save us, not us running to get salvation from Him. He pursues us relentlessly from the fall all the way to the cross where He kills His Son to save us. And what does Jesus say about Himself? I came to what? Seek and save that which was lost. You know, even in the Great Commission, even in the Great Commission, we're showing that our God is a seeking God, aren't we? He's gracious. Contrary to popular opinion, God didn't say this. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and build beautiful buildings, offer great programs, and those who need me will come looking for me. It's not what he said, is it? He said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey Everything I've commanded you, and surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Go to the nations and seek them out. In other words, not only does God seek us, but he seeks us in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And then once we are in Christ, Christ then gives his body, the church, the commission to continue that seeking after those who were lost and sends us to the nations to do it. And so a church that exists apart from that commission is missing the point, isn't it? A church that does not see that its primary role is to worship God and to carry the worship of him to the nations to seek them on behalf of him and his son is a church that's missing the point. We don't exist to build programs to make ourselves comfortable. The primary purpose of the church is not so that we have wonderful children. The primary purpose of the church is not so that we have great music. The primary purpose of the church is that its people worship God and take the worship of God to those who have never heard. Because that's the nature of our king. 
That's what it means to live in his kingdom. Our king graciously sought us out and saved us from the city of man. We're to follow suit. Two, second thing we learn about our king in this section of Genesis, God graciously provides the payment necessary for entrance into his city. In other words, what happened to Adam and Eve when they fell? They're in sin. They're no longer members of the kingdom of God. They are not God's people. They are not in God's place. And they are not under God's rule and blessing. They're getting booted from it, aren't they? They now live in the kingdom of man. And there's an entrance requirement to get back into the kingdom of God. And what is it? It's a payment for sin. You have to be holy to get into the kingdom of God. Your sin has to be paid for and you have to be obedient or holy. And they failed, didn't they? They failed to keep the one command God gave them. Really. The one negative command. He gave them some positive commands. Go out and have dominion. And all the men said, yeah, right? Nobody has a problem with that. Reproduce as much as possible. I don't hear any men going, no, no. Not a hard one to try to meet. Don't eat from that tree. Humbly trust me. Difficult command. That one they violated. And they were sinners. And like them, we are sinners. And so we can't get entrance back into the kingdom of God. We're stuck in the kingdom of man. But God comes and seeks us out. And then not only does he seek us out, he pays the penalty for our sin. The Bible says that if you eat of the fruit of that tree, God says in Genesis 2.17, if you eat of the fruit of that tree, you will surely what? Die. God requires death or blood sacrifice, atonement, the shedding of blood. That's why Hebrews says without the, re- without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. God requires the shedding of blood for the offense of sin against him. But you know what's amazing? God not only requires the shedding of blood, but he provides it. Do you hear that? He provides it. I'll send my son to pay that cost. We see the beginning of this in promise form. Notice Adam and Eve have covered themselves with figs, and then the Lord God comes to them, and he makes this curse on the serpent. Look at verse 14 of chapter 3. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And here's the proto-evangelion, the first gospel they call it. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Here is the promise that through the seed of the woman, God would send the Messiah, his son, Jesus, to die paying for our sin. It's the beginning of the promise that God will redeem man. Isn't that interesting? In the middle of the curse, in the middle of judgment, God reveals grace for his people. He reveals grace. I'll pay the penalty for you. And we see that continue. Look down after the curse. Verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve 
because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and Eve, or for Adam and for his wife, garments of skin and clothed them. Why? They had figs already. You see, Adam and Eve attempted to cover their own shame and sin. And God said, no, it's going to require a blood sacrifice. Not just go pick some leaves off of a bush. It's going to require a blood sacrifice, and I'm going to provide it. So God took animals and killed them and covered them. And he said, I'll cover your shame and your sin. Right from the beginning, he's given this picture that I will pay the price for you. God covered their sin and he covers ours. Even the Old Testament sacrificial system that's given to Moses. You notice that phrase? Even the Old Testament sacrificial system that's given to Moses. Moses didn't come up with it. God provided it. Even that ultimately served to point to the sacrifice, the only blood sacrifice that would ever satisfy the wrath of God against our sins, which is the cross of Jesus Christ. So while the city of man is represented best by the towers men try to build in their attempts to exalt themselves, the city of God is represented best by the cross of Christ as he demonstrated humility. Those are very different cities. God is gracious enough to humble himself and pay our cost so we can be forgiven. So we can be declared righteous and holy. So we can get into the city of God. That's your king, sovereign grace. Your king who sought you and who paid for your sin. Third, God shows grace or favor to whom he wills. This is a more difficult one for some. He shows grace or favor to whom he wills. Third lesson we really learn about him as a king, or the third truth we learn about our gracious king, as is this. He shows grace or favor to whom he wills. I am not sure how else you define grace, by the way. Grace must be sovereign grace given to whom, whomever God wills because grace is unearned or unmerited. It's just His kindness to us. It's not something we reached out and grabbed for. It's not something we asked for. It's not something we went searching for. It's just something God reaches out and gives to us and says, I'm going to give you grace, mercy for you. Why? Because of the great love with which I loved you, I'm extending mercy to you. Why? Because I love my son. Why? That's it. Because I'm God. If someone deserved it, it wouldn't be grace. If it was controlled by the will of man, it would not be grace. As Paul says in Romans 9.16, it does not depend now listen, it does not depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. We have a king who's merciful to us by his own choosing. A lot of people struggle with it. 
for me, it's an awesome concept. Because I didn't earn God's grace. I can't lose God's grace. It wasn't anything in me that gained it, and it isn't anything in me that can take it away. If God was gracious to me and loved me greatly while I was still his enemy, enough to crush his son, as Paul says in Romans 5, 9, and 10, how much more now that I am his friend will he save me to the end? All of his grace. None of me. We see this with the first Adam. Why was God gracious to Adam? I mean, he blatantly sinned, didn't he? Yet God came looking for him and paid for his sins and saved him, right? What about Cain and Abel? He gave Adam a son, Cain, another son named Abel. Look at Genesis chapter 4. Now Adam knew his wife Eve, and that's the Hebrew way of talking about consummation. Knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain. Which, by the way, means kind of like taker or acquirer, somebody who takes things for himself. Interesting name. Saying, I have gotten a man. This is what Eve says, interestingly. I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel, which means uh, um, basically kind of short-lived. Abel's like um, the father of all who got the short end of the stick, right? It means vapor or short life. Isn't that an interesting name? Now Abel, verse 2 was a keeper of sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. In the course of time, time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of the fat portion. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. God was just gracious to Abel and not to Cain. We'll go on and... Talk about them again in a minute. But after Cain is rejected, what does Cain do? He kills Abel. After his offering is rejected, he kills him. And then he comes to God and says, oh, please have mercy on me. Don't send me out there. People will kill me. And God says, all right, I'll put a mark on you, and people will know that they're not to touch you. So Cain goes out. Okay, now God's been gracious to Cain again. He didn't kill him. He didn't send it out to be killed. He's been gracious to him. So Cain goes out and what does he do? He starts having children. Again, God's grace to him. And what does Cain do with his first son? Look at Genesis chapter 4. Going down to verse 17. Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built the city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. So Cain immediately builds a city and names it after his own son. Exalting his own family's name. And then God gives Seth to them. The end of verse 25, or verse 25, the end of, verse four, of chapter 4. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. What's interesting here is that Abel's dead. God has to provide someone through whom the Messiah would come. So he provides Seth. 
provides Seth. Seth has a family tree. Cain has a family tree. Cain's family tree represents the city of man, and Seth's represents the city of God. Doesn't mean that Seth never has sin, but it represents that. And you see Seth giving birth and then having grandchildren, great-grandchildren. The fifth child descended from Seth's line is a, is a child named Enoch. A child named Enoch. He's the seventh from Adam, the fifth from Seth. And he walks with God, and he was not. God's grace was upon him. The fifth son coming down from Cain is Lamech. The seventh from Adam. And he is wicked. Why? Because God was gracious to whom he was gracious. That's the difference. You keep going down to Noah. It's interesting with Noah. Look at chapter 5. Oh, excuse me. Go down to chapter 6. Noah's born in chapter 5. Look at verse 5 of chapter 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his hearts was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven, for I'm sorry that I've made them. In other words, all of men are sinful. The thoughts and intentions of their hearts are wicked. Look at verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord or grace. Is Noah included in all the men who are wicked, who are whose thought, thoughts and intentions are hard or sin? Yes, but he found grace or favor in the eyes of the Lord. God was gracious to him. And you know, Noah wasn't particularly righteous. I mean, it says here that he was righteous. But it also says he was a sinner. If you look at the next verse, um, these, verse 9, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. That's an interesting statement to me, to make about a guy who you just a few verses later included with all of mankind who are sinful, and then who, when he comes out of the ark, his first behavior, essentially, he does a sacrifice, and right after that, God makes a covenant with him. He's, God's made this glorious covenant with him. I'll never flood the earth again. And so Noah's like, great, let's get drunk. And naked. And that's what he does. And he's a righteous man who walked with God. Why is that true of him? Because he found favor in God's eyes. God was gracious to him. God is gracious to whom he wills. Fourth. Now you're going to feel like I'm contradicting myself. God shows grace to those who humbly trust him. The king of our city shows grace to those who humbly trust him. That's the entrance requirement to the city. In order to receive the grace that God wants to give you, you must humbly trust him. That is how you receive it. Someone might say, but I just, I thought you just said that God gives grace to whomever he chooses. Yes, I did. And now I'm saying that God gives grace to whomever believes or trusts him. Deal with it. <laughs> Some people wonder, how can both of these truths about God's sovereignty and grace and man's responsibility 
How can both of those things be true? Because the Bible says so. There you go. Because the Bible says so. That may not be as lofty as the philosophical book you read in your mind and all the arguments you heard. But here's my argument. Because the Bible says so. They're both true because the Bible says they are. That's how God reveals he works. Listen, I, I don't want, no one will be saved who does not believe. Only those who believe will be saved. Man is 100% responsible for his eternal outcome. Faith is necessary as a condition to receive the grace of God. And also, no one will ever be saved unless God saves them. No one will ever be saved as a result of their own works. Salvation is 100% the work and gift of God. God is the one who gets all the praise and glory for our salvation. He did it. He saved us. When Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, was asked how he reconciles these two truths, his response was, I don't try to reconcile them. Because I don't have to reconcile friends. Look, truth is not competing with truth here. The sovereignty of God is not a truth at war with the responsibility of man. It may be at war in our little pea brains, but it is not at war in the eternal counsel of God. So, can I prove this in the text that we have to trust him? Well, Adam and Eve, we can assume that they trusted him because they received the skins that God gave them. Now, so you know, faith is that passive. That's what faith is. It's a receiving of grace. It isn't active. Right? It isn't substantive. It isn't a good work that I get some sort of credit for. It's passive. Faith is God pours out his grace and I receive it. That's it. It's completely a work of him, and I receive it. We can assume that Adam and Eve did so. Um, but I, I think even more clearly, we see Eve start to get grace in chapter 4. And I love this about Eve. I, I, I hate to pick on her, but I'm going to pick on her at first and then, then exonerate her at the end. Verse 1 of chapter 4. Now Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. You, you hear Eve's arrogance there? I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Right? I've done this. Eve actually thinks that in some way God needed her to get this done. I believed all on my own. God didn't work in me. It wasn't a gift to me. It's all me. Yes, he helped, of course. Sure. That's where Eve is. Look at what happens after Cain uh, is cursed and what he does when she gives birth to Seth. Go down to verse 25. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. Do you hear the difference in her, in her approach? I've gotten a man with the help of God. 
God has given me a son. No I in there. Right? For Eve, the me monster died. Right? As soon, the me monster died as soon as Cain killed Abel. And she was desperate and needed God. Because she thought probably Abel was the one, the seed that God was talking about. Maybe it's Cain. Maybe it's Abel. I don't know. But what happens when one of my sons murders the other? It can't be either of them. Right? And so God gives her Seth. Abel. God shows favor, favor to Abel in his offering, but Abel offered the first fruits. He offered the fat portion. It says in Hebrews 11 that Abel offered, brought his offering in faith. He believed. Fact is that I don't want you to think that Abel had faith and Cain didn't. This is a huge mistake in our culture today, an evangelicalism. Abel had faith, Cain had no faith. No, that is not the problem of sinners in the Bible. The problem of unbelievers or sinners in the Bible is not that they have no faith. It's the problem is the object of their faith. I want you to understand that everyone worships. Everyone believes. The question is not, do you worship or do you believe? The question is not, do you trust or do you ascribe ultimate value to something or someone? The question is, who do you worship or trust? Who do you ascribe or what do you ascribe ultimate value and worth to? That's the question. For Cain, it was himself. For Abel, it was the Lord. For believers, it is Jesus. For unbelievers, it is self. For you prior to Jesus interfering in your life, which sometimes you probably feel like it is if you're in the spiritual battle I'm often in, it was all him that came in, rescued me, and turned my worship and trust to him. So when people say, well, what matters is that they're sincere or that they have faith, or that they believe, or they worship something. No, that's not what matters. Because the Bible story isn't the story about a a people who had a choice between God or nothing. Between believing in the one Lord of the universe or believing in nothing. The Bible story is a story about a people who are constantly worshiping something. And they're either worshiping the God of the Bible revealed in the Old New Testaments and most clearly in Jesus Christ or they're worshiping an idol. Do you hear that? So somebody may have sincere faith and it may be idolatry. But it isn't in and of itself virtuous. See, this is our problem. When we think sincere faith is a good thing, it's because somehow we think faith is a virtue. That it's substantive. Faith is not virtuous in the substantive sense. Just because you believe in something, you now are virtuous. No. If your faith is not directed to God, then your faith is itself sin. And Cain worshipped himself. Seth, look at the end of chapter 4. It's an interesting difference between Seth and Cain. Cain builds a city, names his son 
and names the city after his son, wants to exalt his own family. Look at Seth. Really interesting about him when you talk about faith. Verse 26. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. What an interesting name. Don't even notice. If you don't know Hebrew, sorry, you miss out on it unless your Bible is one of those that gives you the little definitions of the names, which I love when they do. Enosh means human frailty. What a weird thing to name your son, isn't it? Human weakness. That's what Seth named his son. (laughs) Human frailty. Needy for God. Essentially what he named his son. And then it goes on and says, at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. An interesting contrast. Seth understood his need for God. Seth trusted the Lord. Cain exalted himself. God extends grace only to those who believe. Noah, see the same tr- humble trust in him. Verse 9 of chapter 6, these are the right generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. He trusted and obeyed God. How can God say that, though, when we see his blatant sin? Because righteousness is not attributed to you based on your own good works. God is your righteousness. And Noah trusted God. Noah knew he was a sinner. He knew he was weak. He knew he needed the grace of God and he trusted in God and he was declared righteous as such in Christ. And then he lived that out in obedience. Fifth and uh, finally, I'm going to say this quickly. God extends grace through covenants. And I'm going to pick up on this next week, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. God extends grace through covenants. What does that mean? To get into the city of God, it happens through a covenantal relationship. A covenant is an agreement between two or more parties. I I memorize that with my children as part of our little confession of faith. Right? A covenant is an agreement between two or more parties. My wife and I got married. That was a covenant. Right? We made an agreement to be married until death do us part. That's how we entered that relationship. It was a covenant. Covenants in the Bible are unilateral. God makes a covenant with man. It isn't that man goes, God, I'm in trouble. We need a covenant. Let's make an agreement. Let's work something out here. It's not what happens. Although I sometimes do that in my prayer life, that is not how covenants work. What happens is this. Man is in trouble and God comes and says, I'm going to make a covenant with you. And the first real covenant we see, and we see a covenant with Adam, but the first covenant we see after the fall is the covenant with Noah. And God comes to Noah because he has grace or favor for Noah and he makes a covenant with him. And that covenant comes to all mankind. I will never again flood the earth. I'll never again do that. I will be patient with man while I save him. And he says, I'll give you a sign for that covenant. What's the sign? The rainbow. Rainbow's a sign. Do you guys ever look at a rainbow after, a, after it rains, which doesn't happen here often, so you get a few chances a year, maybe. And you look at the rainbow and you realize God has placed that in the sky 
to reconfirm the fact that he is a promise-making and promise-keeping God. He makes promises and he keeps them. That's how God brings us into his kingdom, through covenants. He makes a promise to us and he keeps his promise with us. Look, God's always been planning to establish a kingdom, the kingdom we call the city of God. He's always planned to save men into that kingdom or city, always. It's unlike the city of man in that the city, in the city of God, we worship God rather than self. In the city of God, we are given grace rather than the judgment coming to the city of man. In the city of God, we are marked by humility rather than be marked by pride. In the city of God, God has made the cross as its chief symbol, rather than the tower built in tribute to the city of man. The city of God exists for the glory of God, rather than the glory of man, as in the city of man. In other words, sovereign grace, we are a city within a city. We are to live differently because of our incredibly gracious king. We're to look at those trapped in the city of man and desire to see them saved into the city of God. We're to be marked by humility as those who cling to the cross. Admittedly, it's difficult. Admittedly, we're living in a tale of two cities, and it's the best of times, and it's the worst of times. Let me pray. Lord, we recognize our need for you as we live in these two cities. Help us to live as sojourners or strangers in this city of man. Lord, looking forward to your city, the city whose founder and builder is God. Let us look forward to being with you. Let us be marked by deep humility and trust in Jesus. Constant recognition of our need for the cross. Lord, help us to be marked as those people and to live in this city of Bakersfield as the city of God in a way that the world notices and help us to seek them out and see them saved for your glory. Amen. We're going to take communion during the next few songs.